Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. John Villasenor. Good evening. Um, thanks very much. So I'm going to take us uh, over the next 40 minutes or so on a tour of cryptocurrencies. And let me just start by uh, asking, I guess everyone here has heard of Bitcoin because you're at this talk. And how many people here actually have owned Bitcoin or use Bitcoin? Okay, so most people. Okay, so, so this is good. You've got your, your group that's heard of it, but perhaps some people haven't used it. So at the end, by the end of this talk, I'm, I hope that you'll have a, 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 I'll be able to give you a much better flavor for what these are all, cryptocurrencies are all about. Um, have I, I? Yes, I have. I have used bitcoins. Um, uh, so, um, just a, a disclaimer: um, the, that the views presented here are not necessarily uh, those of the institutions I'm associated with. These are my own views. Just want to make sure I mention that. So, let me start out by saying, what is Bitcoin? There's multiple ways that it can be described. Um, it can be described as a currency. Okay, in other words, the, the same way you know a dollar or a pound or uh, Japanese yen is a currency. It can be described as a cryptographic currency because that's it is cryptographic, and we'll we'll explain what that means uh, later on. But it's cryptographic in a way that, for example, a dollar bill uh, is not. Um, it is a protocol, and again, we'll talk about that as well. It's a mechanism, an agreed-on set of procedures for exchanging information about certain things that don't. It doesn't necessarily need to be tied to an actual currency, although in the case of Bitcoin, uh, it generally is. And it's a decentralized transaction network. And so we'll talk about what that means as well. So it's, as opposed to transactions that are centralized, it is spread out. And so all of these things might seem, you know, other than the first, a currency. We all know what a currency is. The latter three bullet points here might seem a little bit uh, less typical for things that you've seen, but, but, but I promise that we will cover them all. Um, a little bit of a snapshot here of the ecosystem. I thought it would be helpful to give you kind of some current information about where things stand. So just, just some numbers to help you um, put this in context. So venture capital investment. These are venture capital firms that invest money in startup companies that are in the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency ecosystem. To date, or at least as of uh, a month ago, the total investment over all time, forever, added up to about $317 million. Compare that with a year ago, or September 2013, when at that point the total investment was, was much lower. Okay, so there's been an enormous upswing in investment uh, just in the last 12 months. The, the, last, the number of Bitcoin wallets, um, these, are, these are basically digital uh, containers where you can hold Bitcoin not necessarily one per person. So one person might own zero wallets or one wallet or 100 wallets. But the number of such wallets, not necessarily the number of people that are engaging in transactions, uh, is uh, about 6.6 .6 million today as opposed to 1.3 million. Or as of September 2014, it was 6.6 .6 million. A year prior, it was 1.3 million. And the number of merchants who accept Bitcoin uh, as of a month ago was about 76,000. Uh, and it was about 10,000 a year prior to that. So there's been enormous growth uh, in the ecosystem in the last year. As many people in this room probably know, Bitcoin was developed by um, a, 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 almost certainly a, a pseudonym, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, and, and I don't know, and as far as I know, nobody at least publicly knows who, what person or groups developed Bitcoin. But whoever this person or group was, published in late 2008 a paper basically saying how this could work. And, uh, and it, it sort of 
you know, it was pretty obscure for a little while, but it really kind of came into the broader public consciousness uh, a few years later. And, and now most people uh, have at least heard of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, although, of course, only a relatively small percentage of people have actually used them. Uh, the number of Bitcoins actual, I mean, no, no, you, you know, there's not, you, can have a, you can't have a Bitcoin the way you can have a quarter or a dollar bill. But the number of Bitcoins, uh, at least in, a, in the computer or digitally represented Bitcoins, has increased from zero in 2009 uh, to about 13.4 million uh, as of today. And so this is a plot. Uh, if, on, on this axis, we have the, the, the uh, obviously the year 2009 and you know up to 2033 and you might say well how do you know how many bitcoins there are going to be in 2033 like if I asked uh, how you know what would be the total amount of dollars in circulation in 2033 you could make some projections but you couldn't say exactly the difference is with bitcoins there's an algorithm there's a process and it's fixed it's already determined that bitcoin new bitcoins are created at a certain rate and that rate, by the way, halves every once in a while. You can see that this is not actually a, obviously it's not a straight line, but it's not even a curved line. It's a, it's a, cur it's a, uh, a series of straight lines, right, with different slopes, right? And so what happens is the rate of creation of Bitcoin, uh, actually it was higher until 2013, then it halved and it will keep halving again. And so economists um, often look at the, the capped money supply, right, the, the inability to create money supply, and, and certainly economists who raise concerns about that raise reasonable concerns, right? Bitcoin is not like, um, like the dollar where you can have uh, a, a central authority deciding to increase uh, or put the brakes on the supply. So over the long term, there are some in, you know, interesting economics questions that can be asked about it. But here, we're here, and we're still here in a, in a pretty rapid growth phase, and so the number of Bitcoins grows, and I'll explain how it grows a little more, in, in, in more detail. In high-level terms, new Bitcoins are mined, okay? And the, the term we use is mine, and, and, it's, uh, and what you, it's, it's not really mining with shovels, but it's mining with a computer. You can, you can have a computer, basically, and I'll explain how it works. A computer can go through some operations in an attempt to create new Bitcoins. Not everyone succeeds, but always somebody does. Um, the number of bitcoins is designed to cap out at, at 21 million, um, but, but as I mentioned, uh, as you saw in this previous uh, slide here, really once you get to once you get to about 2030, it'll it'll be uh, it'll be as, about as high as it'll ever get. Um, let me show you. I'm going to stop and take a view of of uh, actual real time transactions here. So if we can have the the audio or the video swapped out here, so. These are, these are as we speak, here's $25,000 right here, $21,000 right now. We're just watching Bitcoins go, or Bitcoin transactions go. Um, and so, and it is roughly at a rate of about one per second or so. Uh, and if we were to click on any one of these, uh, one, any one of these uh, you know, strings of letters and numbers here, we would then be able to get details about these transactions. And it's interesting, if you watch these scroll by, you know, here's 73 cents here. Um, here's $5,000 up here. We saw something like $25,000 or $30,000 a few moments ago. So these are, uh, these are you know, all over the map in terms of transactions. Here's $35,000 right here. And they're all over the world, right? They're, they're, they're moving, you know, all, you know, you don't know whether this is a transaction that's moving 10 miles or one that's moving literally from one continent uh, to another continent. Uh, so there's a real-time view. So if we can have the video uh, back to the original. Uh, so... Um, 
Just a note on terminology before we, we continue. Uh, th there's various terms that you'll see describing cryptocurrencies in the press uh, and in talks like this. And, and uh, there's people who will use the term virtual currency, cryptographic money, digital currency, and cryptocurrency. And we could have a long discussion about which of these terms we should be using, but it's not a good use of our time to have that discussion. We can sort of agree what we all mean and that, you know, for example, virtual currency, people say, well, that implies that it's not really real, but it's just as real as anything else. And, um, but, but you'll see these used interchangeably. And, I, I, and if I jump between them, I don't mean any, I'm not trying to suggest any nuances. What we're really talking about is, is these digital currencies that are cryptographically secured. And I'll explain what all that means uh, in process in this distributed manner. And I'll, I'll explain what that means as well. Um, I, by contrast, a fiat currency um, is a currency issued by a government uh, or a coalition of governments. So in the European Union, you have the euro. Here, of course, we've got the dollar. Uh, in Japan, you've got the yen and so on. So a fiat currency is a traditional government-issued currency uh, like all of us uh, are very familiar with. A non-fiat currency is any currency that's not issued by a government including but not necessarily limited to these cryptocurrencies. Um, and let me also mention that alternative currencies aren't a new phenomenon, right? Everyone or almost everyone in this room probably has frequent flyer miles, right? So those are a form of currency, right? They, you know, they don't have all the flexibility, of course, that the U.S. dollar has, but they still, they, they still act as, in, so, in some sense, a form of, of currency. Also, online games and online worlds have, of course, a, a whole, many of them have associated with them uh, their own currencies. So, what, so the idea of alternative currencies issued or, or that aren't necessarily fiat currencies isn't new. It's really, you know, it goes back many decades or really more. What is new is, is the growth of decentralized cryptographic digital currencies. And we'll talk about both of those things, decentralized and cryptographic, because both of those are important to the way Bitcoin and similar uh, virtual or dis, uh, dis, cryptographic currencies function. So some key attributes, and again, we'll, we'll sort of get into this in more detail as we go, but some key attributes. One attribute, it, Bitcoin and, and its ilk provide a mechanism to move money extremely quickly anywhere in the world without oversight by any central authority. Okay, now obviously that, has, that raises some regulatory issues and we'll talk about those, but just, that's just a statement of fact. Okay? It is possible with these currencies to move 10 cents or $10,000 uh, without necessarily going through, for example, the, the central you know, uh, money transaction processing system of any particular country. Um, there, these transactions are also synonymous. And there's a difference between anonymous and synonymous. Anonymous uh, generally means you really can't tie, you really don't know um, who's behind something. Synonymous is a little bit different where you have a pseudonym, right? Where, where there is somebody, there, there's a way to, there is a mapping between, for example, this Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever that is, is a pseudonym because there is a real person or a group of people who actually correspond to that, that name. We just don't know who they are. Bitcoin transactions are synonymous as well in the sense that parties to transactions are identified only by strings of letters, uh, alphanumeric strings of letters and numbers. So if I can have the video here again, if, 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 if we can swap that again here, what I'm going to do is try to click, uh, if I can get my mouse to follow this thing. Okay, so I've, I've just clicked on uh, one of these transactions, which was $3,799. And what happened was, you can see up here, I'll use the mouse to show you, that basically this 
this is the ID of a, a, a source, some source that was sending Bitcoin, and, and this is the recipient, and that's how much money, uh, that's how much money was, was sent. Um, and, and that's all we know, right? We don't know who this is, so it's a pseudonym. This string of, of alphanumeric characters is a pseudonym, and obviously there's a real human being behind that, but the Bitcoin system... There's no, there's no lookup, there's no table that I can go somewhere and say, hey, let me, let me click into that, and oh, it's going to give me a name and an address and a date of birth. And there isn't anything like that. This is the only thing that we know, really, about this. So it's, they're synonymous. Uh, so that's the pseudonym. That's the, ident- that's, that's the way we identify, in this case, a particular you know, uh, wallet, and that's associated with a person, but we don't know who that person might be. So if we can have the video uh, switch back here. Um, and it's got a really novel trust model. Okay. The trust model, how, you know, how do you know, one of the most important things when you have transactions is trust, right? How do you know that, you know, if you have the equivalent of $20 and you're sending it somewhere, that it's really going to get, you know, go where it's uh, supposed to go? Uh, and so it's, 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 a, it's a trust model. So Bitcoin and most other cryptocurrencies operate in a system of what we call decentralized trust. And it's a fascinating concept because no single entity in the entire network is trusted. Yet, despite that fact, in the aggregate, the network acts in a trusted manner. It's a fascinating approach, right? You know, we're used to, we're used to transactions where there absolutely is a trusted sort of central entity, right? So when you put your money in a bank, you trust that the bank is going to be a, a, a trustworthy custodian of your money and you're going to be able to go get it back and so on. Um, yet in the Bitcoin network, no, it doesn't matter that there's nobody, that no single person that's trusted. What matters is that in the aggregate, the, the collection of untrusted people or, or nodes in the network act and behave in a manner, manner that imposes trust despite the lack of trust on any one entity in the network. So that's a fascinating, it's fascinating that, it's a fascinating concept at, to start with, and it's a fascinating concept that it actually works, right? If you had proposed, or if somebody had proposed a system for decentralized currency in which there was no one trusted, no one overseeing it, but that in, in fact the network would act in a trusted manner overall, and that the aggregate value of all the bitcoins would be in the billions of dollars, which is what it is right now, today, there are plenty of, quote, experts who would have told you why that's impossible, why it wouldn't possibly, couldn't possibly work but it does, or at least it has. Um, so the other point I'd like to make about the Bitcoin network, or about the Bitcoin protocol, which is it gives you an interesting lens with which you can then see our own more traditional transactions. It, transactions in Bitcoin can be accomplished without giving away information that can be used to defraud. Now, if you think about it, think about credit cards, right? In many ways, credit cards are, are, are fundamentally a bit crazy, right? If credit card is you have the sequence of numbers and letters, right? And you, you give it to all sorts of strangers, right? You give it to restaurant waiters, you type it into the internet, you, you give it to all sorts of people all over the place. And the model for the way credit cards work is you give, you, in order to spend money on a credit card, you have to convey all of the information necessary to take more money than you want to spend, right? And then you just hope and trust that whoever got the information is an ethical good person who has secure computer systems. And if you said, I want to pay you know, $80 for this dinner for me and a few friends, then they're really going to charge you $80 and not $180 or $280. And as we all know, 
Every, most people in most organizations are very trustworthy, but you know, probably everybody in this room has had their credit card you know, uh, you know, misused at some point in time. Right? So this idea that we're all accustomed to, that in spending money, like through credit cards, we have to just give all the information to defraud us, is a strange, strange idea. Okay, it doesn't make any sense. If you were ever defined, if credit cards didn't exist, and I proposed them, if I said, hey, I'm a professor of engineering, I've got this great idea, right? We're going to create, everyone's going to get a string of numbers, and yeah, if anyone else gets a hold of it, they can steal a bunch of money, but let's just not worry about that. People would say, that's crazy, it doesn't make any sense, it's not going to work, right? Um, but that's the system we have. So, so in, in these cryptographic currencies, you can, and I'll explain how in a moment, you can do transactions, and in doing that, you are never, not once, putting at risk, putting out there information that can be used to take more money. So if you're transferring $20 to somebody with Bitcoin, the recipient can't say, aha, well, you think you were giving me $20, but I'm going to play some games, and you're actually going to be giving me $200. The recipient simply does not have the information to do that, no matter what. No matter how unethical the recipient may be, or even if he or she is ethical, no matter how poorly secured his or her computer systems might be, there's simply no way that somebody only having access to the recipient's information can extract more money from you than you wanted to give. That's a fundamental advantage of these systems. Um, let me also, uh, if we can have the video back again, I'm going to show um, a little bit about the price of Bitcoin. So this is the market price of Bitcoin. What we mean by that is how many US dollars it takes to buy one Bitcoin. And again, as I mentioned, there's, not, there's nothing magic about the number one. You can buy a half a Bitcoin or 0.614 Bitcoin or any quantity you want. But you still need to have some way to express Bitcoins and dollars. And so this is how we do it, or at least this is how we will do it here with dollars. So as of today, uh, October 2014, and roughly $400 uh, per Bitcoin. Uh, you can see here, uh, you know, I, I wish that I, and maybe perhaps you wish that you, uh, had, had the foresight to, you know, buy a bunch of Bitcoins here and sell them, you know, there, then, then you know, we'd be all having this talk on our private jet somewhere. But, um, but uh, yeah, so it's gone way up. But it's, it's you know, very volatile, obviously. But um, uh, it, as of today, right now, uh, it's about about $400 per, um, per Bitcoin. I also, um, I thought it was useful to show this is transaction volume uh, in US dollars. And I apologize for those who you can't see uh, the numbers, but this is 100 million. So recently, you know, roughly 50, you know, bouncing around, but 50-ish million dollars a day, right, in, in money moving around. So. In the, in the overall scheme of currency or money movement on the planet, this is the tiniest drop in the bucket, right? Yet, at the same time, $50 million or $40 million a day is still a lot of money, right? So it's, it, depending on how you look at it, it's either tiny or it's actually pretty significant. It's certainly significant enough that it has gotten the attention of regulators and people uh, and you know, governments who are concerned about anti-money laundering and so on. Uh, so it's, it's certainly on the radar screen uh, in that sense. So if we could go back to the, uh, uh, the other. So uh, let me um, also question, who accepts, where can you use Bitcoin, right? So should you decide after seeing this talk that you want to buy a Tesla with Bitcoin uh, and you can find the dealership open, then you can go ahead and do that. Tesla accepts uh, Bitcoin. 
Overstock.com is an online site you may have heard of. Gift is a digital card platform where you can use Visa or MasterCard or other things, but you can also go on there and use Bitcoin. And then if you, if you go on their site, you can see from there, you can go to all, you know, most of the, many of the major retailers that you've heard of. Um, thousands of other merchants, as I mentioned, 70-something thousand merchants as of a month ago take Bitcoin. But let's, let's you know, be honest here, the you know, perspective, the overwhelming majority of merchants don't accept Bitcoin, right? If you think about what are the last 10 purchases you made, and if you walked into every one of those stores tomorrow and said, I'd like to pay in Bitcoin, chances are most of them would say, you know, you know no, you can't. You can pay credit card, you can pay cash, you can't pay Bitcoin. So, so again, um, many, many more than before, but still only a tiny fraction of, of all the folks that are out there. So let's take a detour here so we can talk about cryptographic currencies. We're going to take a detour and talk about public key cryptography. Has anyone, raise your hand if you've heard of public key cryptography. Okay. So I'm going to, at the risk of perhaps boring the half of you or a third of you who have heard of it, I'm going to explain it for those who have not. And, and I should also emphasize that public key cryptography has nothing, is, is, existed long before Bitcoin, is used in many other contexts. It's an amazing concept, a fascinating concept. It is used in Bitcoin, but it is not only used in Bitcoin. So the way public key cryptography works is you have a public key, which is a string of numbers and letters, just like I showed you before, and that is paired with a private key. And as the names imply, the private key is something that you would keep to yourself, and the public key is something that you would tell anybody who you, who you want to tell. A message encrypted with a public key can be, can be decrypted with the corresponding private key. So if you give me your private key, I can then, I'm sorry, if you give me your public key, then I can write a message, encrypt it with the public key that you gave it, and I can broadcast it to the world, but you are the only one on the planet who can actually decrypt it. Okay? Conversely, a message encrypted with a private key can be decrypted with the corresponding public key. So if I have a message and I encrypt it with my own private key, I can broadcast it to the world, and anybody who's in possession of my public key can decrypt that message. And we'll see why that's important in a, in a moment. Public key cryptography is used in many, many applications, in secure communications, in financial applications. It's used to generate and verify what are, what are called digital signatures, which I will explain in just a moment. And the way this works is that documents can be signed using a private key, and the signature can be verified with the corresponding public key. And I'm going to explain how that works. Um, and this is, I'll, I'll, get, I'll show some numbers, some bits, and ones and zeros, but it, it, it'll be fine. It won't be too, it won't be too crazy. So um, I'm going to talk about a hash function. Okay? A hash function is something that, and, and you're not going to say, oh gosh, this is engineering professor. He's turning into engineering class. But this is going to be really, really straightforward. It generates a fixed length string from a variable length input. So you say, okay, what does that mean? Let's do, let's do an example. So a very simple and completely impractical but simple example. Suppose that we want to generate a one-bit hash. And let's suppose that our, our, our method is, I'm going to, if it says here, count the number of ones in a sequence. If the result is even, the hash is zero. And if the result is odd, the hash is odd. So here's a sequence. How many ones are there in the sequence? Well, there's two ones. Two is an even number, right? So my hash is zero. How many ones are there here? Well, there's an odd number of ones, three. So I write one. Here, there's uh, an even number of ones, so I write zero. Is everyone okay with that, right? So this is, this is, this is a hash function. Now you understand hash functions. What this does is, and obviously you can understand that however long a string of ones and zeros I gave you, all you'd have to do is count the number of ones. And if it's even, you'd write a zero. And if it's odd, you'd write a one. 
right? So this is an example of, of how a hash function works. And you can see how it generates a fixed, the, out, the in, output here is always one, right? There's always one bit, right, from this thing. And, and this input can be any size you want. So variable length input, it can be as long as you want, and a fixed length output. Now in practice, most hashes are longer than one bit, uh, but that's how it works uh, in general. Even for long hashes, it's easy to generate the hash from the input. It's impossible to reverse the process. Let's go back. If I say to you, the hash was zero, what was the original string? Can you tell me? No, right? Because it could have been that, it could have been that, or it could have been half of all the infinite number of different strings possible, right? Because half of them have an, an even number of ones, right? Um, so so it's, it's a, it's a one-way one mapping, right? It's easy to go this way. It's impossible, right, to go that way. So that's how, that's how a hash works. Um, and, you know, think, think about it, and you think about it this, suppose I have a 258-bit sequence. With 258 bits, that's a lot of bits, right? How many different 258-bit sequences are there? Two raised to the 258-bit. That's a huge number. It's like more than the number of protons in the universe. It's a big number, right? But there's only, you know, but there's only this many 256-bit hashes, much fewer hashes. So the, the powers of two in exponentials really impact things here. So why does, what does this have to do with cryptocurrencies? Why are we talking about this? For a longer hash, it's, a, it's extremely difficult to find an input that yields a specific desired hash. Now, you might say to me, well, hold on a second. Let's go back to the example that you gave. And this is trivial. If, if I, if I want to create an input that has a hash of zero, all I have to do is come up with anything that has an even number of zeros. That's easy. That's not hard. And that's true. But that's because this is just one bit. If I had a hash that was 64 bits long, and I, and I asked you to create an input that was going to generate it, it would be really, really hard. You couldn't, in practical terms, you couldn't do it. And that's important for Bitcoin, as we'll talk about it in, in a moment. It's a little less difficult, but, not but, but still hard, to find an input that gives you a range of hash values. So in other words, if, if I say, I want you to, to find me an input that gives me an exact 64-bit sequence, you, you'd be, have a really hard time doing it. If I say, find an input that has a range of, of you know, any sequence, any 64-bit sequence within some range, some window. If I make the window big enough, it becomes easier, easier to generate that hash. Okay? So that's, the, so, so that's the, the process that's used for generating hash. How does this all work for digital signatures? And again, we're, we're still talking about digital signatures in public key cryptography generally, not necessarily in Bitcoin, although this is also used in Bitcoin. So why do we care about this? If I, suppose I send a message. I want to send a message saying, I hereby authorize you know, my bank to pay $511 to party XYZ. Now, the bank wants to know, the bank receives that message, right? The bank wants to be able to decrypt that message, to understand it, and the bank wants to know that I really sent that message. Those are two different things, right? You know, A, what is the message, and B, did it, did it get in, interfered with on its way from, you know, the person who sent it to the bank? So here's what happens. Here's how we use what we've just talked about a second ago. What's, what does the sender do? The sender sends the message. The sender just says, hey, bank, I want to send, you know, $511. The sender also creates a hash of the message, okay? At this, I am the sender. I create a hash of the message. Then I encrypt and send the hash with a private, with my private key. Okay, so I've created this hash and I've encrypted it with my private key and I've sent it. The recipient receives the message. The recipient creates a hash of the received message because the recipient received the message. In addition, the, reci the recipient receives and decrypts using the public key the encrypted hash that I sent. 
and the recipient compares those two hashes. And if those two hashes are the same, the recipient can have extremely high, effectively 100% confidence that the message wasn't tampered with. Okay? So it's a really ingenious way to actually send information and allow other third parties to verify that that information really is what you sent and was not tampered with. Okay? That's a critical part, as you can imagine, of financial transactions secured using cryptography. So now let's bring that back to uh, Bitcoin. Okay? Let's suppose we have two people, Carmen and John. And let's suppose we want that Carmen wishes to send 0.1 Bitcoins to John. Okay? So 0.1 Bitcoins is you know, 40-ish dollars, right? So what happens? So first of all, the sender needs to have previously received and still hold an amount sufficient for the transaction, right? So, I mean, think about the analogy in terms of your wallet, right? If you're going to pull out your wallet and buy a muffin, right, at a coffee shop, right, that whole process only works if you have previously put into your wallet, right, enough cash to buy the muffin, right? So if the muffin costs $2 and you only have $1 in your wallet, you can't do it, right? So in Bitcoin, it's the same thing. So if Carmen wants to send this 0.1 Bitcoin to John, then she has to have received at least that amount and still have it prior to that. So let's assume, for the, case of, for the sake of this example, that previously Carmen received a total of 0.13 Bitcoin. So obviously more than enough to do this transaction. So what happens? So the, the and by the way, this is, so I've, I'm trying to illustrate, these are, remember we said we don't have actual names, we just have Bitcoin wallet IDs, strings of, num, of, of, of characters, right? That's what we saw on the screen the other, the other day. So maybe the rest of the world doesn't know that this string of numbers and letters belongs to Carmen, and that this string of numbers and letters belongs to Carmen, right? The world doesn't know that. The world has no way of knowing that. But Carmen knows that, right? Because she controls those two Bitcoin addresses. She knows that each one of them currently have a balance of, well, this one 0.08 Bitcoin and this one 0.05 Bitcoin. So what happens? So what happens is Carmen broadcasts the, to the network. Carmen tells the whole world, hey, whole world, I hereby am, am sending money. Okay? And what am I sending? I'm sending 0.1 Bitcoin to this address right here, which happens to be the address that John is controlling. Okay? So that the whole network gets, 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 that, gets that information. And now, if you think, if you think about the math here, right, if, if there's 0.13 Bitcoin here, and, there, and she's sending 0.1 Bitcoin you know, to John, there's 0.3 Bitcoin that's unaccounted for. So what Carmen will also do is generally say, hey, I want some money back, right? So this is the balance. Now you might say, why is it that this is not quite 0.3 Bitcoin? Why is it, right? Why would you, and, and the reason is it's a transaction fee, okay? So, so and, and the transaction fee is, is to basically entice, to attract the broader network to process this transaction and include it in this whole sort of register of transactions, right? So, and on the higher, the more that Carmen is willing to sacrifice in the transaction fee, the more attractive that transaction will be for the, the distributed network to sort of process it and include it. So again, we had 0.08 Bitcoin here, 0.05 Bitcoin here, so we had 0.13 Bitcoin, 0.1 Bitcoin went here, 
0.0299 came back to Carmen. So she has accomplished her goal of giving John 0.1 Bitcoin. She has the change, or almost all of the change, but there's a little bit that was given to somebody in the network to go ahead and process this. Okay? Um, and so that's how the, the transactions work. So now what happens is this gets broadcast to the whole network, and to sort of actually make sure this transaction sticks, the network has to do some processing. Um, so as I said, the transaction is signed using a private key or multiple private keys, and the transaction, including the signature, is broadcast publicly uh, to the network. Now, I'll, I'll go into this in a minute, but I'll sort of stop and explain. This is sort of the inverse of what you do with your bank account, right? With your bank account, right, your, your transactions, in your, with your, your bank account, your transactions are not public. But your identity, the fact, like if you look at, if you ever look, I don't know if anyone uses checks anymore. Does anyone here write checks much anymore? But if you use checks, I still write some checks. If you use checks, if you look on your check, it actually has your bank account number on it. I don't know if you've actually looked. It's got, got, your, got your bank account on, number on the check. It's got your name and it's got your address and all that kind of stuff. So, this, so you are, the, you, the, the fact that you have a bank account is, is not quite public information, but it's not that private, right? In the sense that everybody you write a check to has access to all this information, right? However, your transactions, the specifics of your transactions are private, right? Other than the bank, right, that, you know, you, you, when you're, if you hand, you know, the electrician a check, you know, to pay the electrician, the electrician can't then use that check to go get information about all your transactions, right? In the Bitcoin network, it's, it's inverted in the sense that every single transaction that has ever occurred is public. They are all public. Anybody can look. You can, every time any Bitcoins have moved from any one place to any other place, it's all there. Not at all secret. What is secret, or at least not openly shown, is who is behind each of those transactions, right? So it really inverts this paradigm of how transactions are sort of, you know, in, in, in one sense, it's far more private than traditional mechanisms for moving money. And in another sense, it's far more public, right? It's, it's sort of paradoxical in that respect. So what happens when Carmen, when Carmen broadcasts this message saying, I want to send 0.1 bitcoins to John, everybody in the network listens to that. Thousands of people all around the world listen to that transaction. And what they do is they, they try to include that transaction in a block, and they try to solve it. And I'll explain how that works. What happens is a block, about every 10 minutes there's a new block. And that block contains all the information about all the transactions that occurred in the previous 10 minutes. And the goal of the miner is to be the person who basically kind of locks down that block. And once that block is locked down, you can think about it as it's called a blockchain. You have a, you know, one block right here, and then once that's locked down, the next 10 minutes of transactions are here, the next 10 minutes of transactions are here. And so every time a miner sort of you know, closes up a block or solves a block, then you start working on the new block. So, so how does that work? On average, it takes about 10 minutes for the miners to collectively solve a block. Okay, all these and about every two weeks, the difficulty is adjusted to make it, you know, the expected time about 10 minutes. So, because this is a computer process, so you might think, well, you know, I'm just going to buy more computers and I'm going to work faster to sort of solve this block, and that way, instead of solving the blocks in 10 minutes, if I have 50 times as many people doing it, these blocks are going to get solved in half a minute or something, right? But, but the difficulty of the problem gets continuously adjusted, so it always takes 10 minutes, no matter, about 10 minutes on average, no matter how many people are working on the problem. So how do they solve the block? What you have to do to solve a block is, remember we talked about, we talked about how hard it is to guess an input that's going to create a certain hash. Remember that, right? 
what, the, what the, the miner does is guesses an input, right, and tries to make it an input that after you do the hash function is going to be the right number. It's sort of like playing the lottery, right? It's really hard. The odds are really low, but somebody wins the lottery, right? Chances of it being me or anyone in this room is pretty low, but if you have enough people rolling the dice enough times, somebody is going to do it, right? And the system is engineered, so every 10 minutes, somebody wins, okay? Somebody guesses the right number that sort of solves this block, okay? And what happens is if you solve this block, if you're the person who's lucky enough to have the computing power or the, the lucky number to solve this block, you get rewarded with 25 new bitcoins, which, you know, you know 25 times you know, 40, whatever it is, it's, you know, 1,000, that was a pretty healthy amount, amount of, 25 times 400, I guess it's like $10,000, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a healthy amount of money, right? It's a good, good, good amount of money. Um, like I said, the solution involves something called a proof of work, what do I want to say here? I already said this. So basically, yeah, you basically, you have all these people all around the world collectively guessing numbers. One of them actually, within 10 minutes, guesses the right number. They say, hey, everybody, I've solved this block. Everybody else can check their solution to see if it's worked. So yeah, it's right. And then people move on to the next block. Then the transaction, all the transactions that occurred in that block are considered not final, but less likely to be overturned in the future. Um, so how, how does this work? How many people are out there? So I'll give you a number that's stunning. As of today, as of now, the Bitcoin network collectively, and by the way, anybody can be a node in the Bitcoin network. If you, after hearing this talk, decide that you want to go mine Bitcoins, you can go home and download some software and start mining. Now, the odds of you actually getting Bitcoins through that process are super, super small because there's this very powerful computer. Compute, you're up against huge server farms of computers designed specifically to mine Bitcoins. So it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of like you're trying to win the lottery by w buying one ticket at a time and you're up, up against people who are buying a thousand tickets or a million tickets at a time. You could win, but statistically your odds are very, very low. Um, so how many, how many hashes per second are collectively being computed around the world? Right now, 250 million billion. And that's not a typo. I didn't mean to say 250 billion and accidentally typed billion. It's million billion. So I'm not sure what a million billion is, but it's a really big number, right? It's just, I can't really imagine. I mean, I can't really imagine a billion, but a million billion, I'm not sure what that means, but it's big, right? Um, so the aggregate computing power devoted to that is the equivalent to just huge numbers of computers, right? It's, 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 and some people have raised concerns about the environmental impact. They said, gosh, how much electricity collectively is being spent around the world to compute 250 million billion things per second, right? You can do the math. It's actually a pretty significant amount of electricity, right? And then, you know, if you, but if you make that argument, then people say, well, yes, but you don't understand. There's benefits to showing the ecosystem works. And I'm not going to take a position on that. I'm just saying it's a lot of electricity, right? A lot, a lot of computing power going, going on there. Um, so let's talk about some, let's talk about some challenges, right? The, the Achilles heel of any virtual currency or any digital currency system is the, the, the double spending problem. It's a simple problem, right? It basically says, suppose I have $1,000 and I'm a criminal. If I can figure out a way to give somebody over here $1,000 and then five minutes or five days later give the same $1,000 to somebody over here, that's the double spending problem, right? Any, virtual, any currency system that is vulnerable to that problem is going to come crashing down very fast because there's not going to be any confidence in the system, right? That's the double spending problem. Um, so assuming, now, so what happens, if, what, what's ha what happens if I try to spend 
you know, my Bitcoin, I try to buy a muffin with my Bitcoin today, and then this, with the same Bitcoin, I try to buy another muffin, you know, tomorrow. Well, that'll be stopped, because this blockchain, this record of all these transactions, knows that I've already spent that, right? If we go back to the example with Carmen and John before, the, the record, everybody in the planet who's on this system knows that Carmen spent the 0.08 and the 0.05 Bitcoin and only has 0.03 or a little less left, and that's all she has. So the double spending problem is prevented if you try to spend tomorrow what you already spent uh, today. It's a little more complicated if I'm very clever and I try to spend you know, a Bitcoin here and then a half a second later spend the same Bitcoin somewhere else, right? That's called a race attack where you're basically trying to do the double spending you know, before people catch up to you. But even that, uh, there's ways that people have of, um, of, doing, of dealing with that. That said, for that reason, if you buy a Tesla with Bitcoin, they are not going to let you walk out the door with it or drive out the door or drive out the, off the parking lot with it um, 10 seconds after you've pressed return on your, you know, your laptop or your tablet. You, you can't just say, oh, I want that Tesla, boom. You got that? Great, see you later. What they're going to do is they're going to make you wait um, probably about 60 minutes, about six blocks worth, because once, once a transaction is sort of buried six blocks deep in this chain of blocks, the odds that it's going to be overturned and, and found to have been double spent or something are really so infinitesimally small that most people assume it's, it's, as, good, uh, it's, as, it's as good as done. Let me talk a little bit. I already talked about anonymity, uh, so I don't, I don't want to say that again. Um, I also said... You know, the blockchain, this chain of transactions is this public ledger where everybody can look at. So the question is, if all transactions are public, even though the identity is behind them, could you then go back and sort of trace things through the network and then uncover identities anyway? And the answer is, in some cases, yes. There's been some fascinating research um, done showing that because all this transaction information is public, if you're careful enough and if the people doing the transactions have uh, have, haven't done a lot to cover their, their tracks, you can actually kind of go back and walk through all these transactions and walk them back to, to an original point, and in that case, potentially sort of unmask the person uh, behind, behind the transaction. Talk a little bit about regulation. Um, so uh, so the people, sometimes people criticize Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and they say, well, they could be used for crime. And, and one answer is, well, that's certainly true. But, the, but then what I always say is, well, is there anybody who can tell me any payment mechanism, any transactional mechanism that hasn't been used for crime, right? I mean, cash is certainly used in crimes, and credit cards are used in crimes, and checks are used in crimes, and yes, virtual or digital currencies, cryptographic currencies can be misused for unlawful purposes. Um, however, cryptocurrencies, to be fair, to acknowledge the people who raise these concerns, raise this additional concern or issue that they are synonymous, right? That it's not easy to identify the persons behind the transaction. In addition, there's consumer protection concerns, right? Um, so a defender, if there was a person here from a credit card company who heard me complaining that credit cards are designed in a strange way because they allow you, you, know, you give all the information to defraud you, a defender of credit cards would say correctly that, hey, credit cards have a lot of consumer protection built into them, right? If you get mischarged, there's a mechanism for grievances and for addressing that. Whereas in this ecosystem, if you accidentally, you know, transfer $1,000 in Bitcoin and then you decide, you know, you decided, yeah, I'm going to change my mind. You know, I bought this, I bought this widget for $1,000, but it's a defective widget. I want my money back. You can ask the person, but if the person says no, then you're not getting your money back, right? So there's no, there's no, none of the consumer protection built into the underlying transaction mechanism that there is in some other ways. People here heard of Silk Road. People remember reading about that? So 
I guess it was maybe a year ago now, um, uh, this, Silk Road was a sort of an infamous black market online site where, where you could go online, so I hear, I never did this, but I hear that you could go online and buy cocaine and have it shipped to your front door and, and all sorts of stuff. So, um, and it collected many tens of millions of dollars in fees and the alleged, oper and, and, and this is relevant because it was Bitcoin was the preferred mechanism of payment, right? So obviously if you're the type of person who's selling cocaine over the internet, you're not going to want payment in personal checks, right? Or the, if, you're the, if you're the kind of person who's buying cocaine over the internet, you're not going to want to pay with a personal check. Um, and so the transactions occurred using Bitcoin, uh, and that was part of the uh, appeal of this site to people who wanted their transactions to be off the, the radar. The, arrest, the, oper the alleged operator was arrested in October of last year, and then there were more uh, arrests in 2013, or early, late 2013, early this year. Uh, so that was an example of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies being used for undeniably uh, criminal purposes. Um, unsurprisingly, regulators in the United States and in many other countries are scratching their heads and, in many cases, working very hard to figure out how to handle cryptographic currencies. And there's not, there are, isn't the full set of answers yet, but a little bit, a little bit of framework. Um, there's something called the Bank Secrecy Act, which dates from 1970, which has developed since then, and it's got procedures to, you know, combat money laundering and so on. And there's a group within the Treasury called the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which deals with trying to safeguard the financial system. So these folks, there's a group here who are very busy trying to figure out regulation. New York State um, the, uh, the financial regu regulating financial transactions in the United States is a complex issue because we've got the federal government and we've got the states and both play a role and they play, you know, sometimes partially overlapping roles and complementary. It's complicated. But New York, for whatever reason, has been very aggressive in trying to sort of come up with regulations for Bitcoin transactions. It's a sort of hot topic in the, regu in the, in the regulatory discussion right now. It's unclear how it's all going to work out. Clearly, um, uh, clearly, there's a move towards regulating these transactions, but, but there's some, it's, not, it's not clear how you could do that, right? Um, I'll, I'll just give an example of that. If you're, re if you're regulating normal financial transactions that are, that are done through a centralized entity, you can say, for example, everybody, all banks are required to report, you know, anybody who walks into to the door and, of a bank and deposits, you know, $10,000 in cash, you know, the bank's got to report that. Or anybody who wires, you know, $100,000 from bank A to bank B, uh, you have to report that. Um, a, a Bitcoin transaction like the ones that we just saw, the actual transactions aren't, you, you can't, who are you, who are you going to order to report those? Because those, are, those transactions are being done from the endpoints, from one individual to individual to another individual, and those individuals may not even be in the United States. So it's very hard to mandate the kind of reporting for transactions that you have uh, with, um, uh, with, with sort of traditional transactional mechanisms. For, for people who, who deposit money into Bitcoin, it's easier, right? If, if I say, I want to turn $1,000 into Bitcoins, it's easier to regulate that, at least in the United States. But the actual transactions, Bitcoin to Bitcoin, you know, sending Bitcoin is, is a, little bit, a little bit harder. I also, before I close up, I want to mention that Bitcoin and cryptographic currencies, this presentation has been about money. But Bitcoin has many broader implications. Because what you're using, we're talking about is, an ability to move assets, it doesn't have to be money, 
to move assets and to have that movement be recorded and vetted and agreed upon by the world without one centralized entity. So, for example, one of the things I've looked at is digital rights management, right? We've, everybody, many people here no longer get, you probably get music downloaded, right? I mean, hopefully you buy it, but when you, when you, when you buy music or you acquire music, it's in a digital file as opposed to a physical medium like a CD or, or something like that, right? So, and there's been this complicated question about, well, how, can you, how could you transfer, how could you protect artists and re recording artists so that, you know, when you buy something, you can't, buy it once and sell it 30 times, right? Because that would be terribly unfair to artists and obviously a copyright violation. But suppose there were a mechanism that would allow you to buy digital media and then transfer it, being absolutely sure that you didn't hang on to what you transferred, right? But that's really the same problem we have with the financial transactions, right? If I receive a dollar in Bitcoin and I want to transfer it, Bitcoin, the system, has to make sure that I didn't hang on to that dollar that I also transferred, right? It's the same problem or a very similar problem. So there's lots of interesting applications for these distributed trust networks that go way beyond payments and go on to how we have a tally for identifying who owns what at what time. And that can be really, really important in a bunch of areas that go way beyond uh, regular financial transaction uh, uh, challenges. Um, so a couple of quick closing takeaways. There's an enormous amount of innovation in this, in this space. It's a fascinating space. Um, regardless of whether you believe specifically in the Bitcoin story, um, it, it's worth looking at just because this idea of, of decentralized trust and what it can and, and can't do is really, really interesting. The landscape is changing very, very quickly. The state of play today is very different from what it was six months ago, which is different, again, from what it was six months prior to that. What we'll see in the next few years a lot of innovation in currencies and protocols. There's a lot of people, and there's a, Bitcoin isn't the only currency. There's dozens of currencies. Bitcoin is by far the most popular, um, but there's dozens of them. Um, the, the value of the network effect means that um, the, the market will be dominated by a small number of digital currencies, right? It would be a nice idea if all of us in this room could get together today and create a new digital currency. Let's just do it, right? And have it be worth $4 billion in a few years, and we'd all like divide it up, but we'd still do really well. You know, $4 billion is a lot of money. You really can't do that. It's really hard, right? Because you know, you, to, to make it work, you've got to convince a bunch of people to adopt it. So practically speaking, the, even though the market opportunity for digital currencies is very high, the market will, as it does in other fields, coalesce among a small set of kind of opportunities. And Bitcoin, is, at least to date, has been one of those, one of those opportunities. Um, regulate, you know, the bit, one of the big stories is going to be regulation despite the challenges. Um, and we're not the only ones in this country that are looking at it. They're looking at it in Europe. They're looking at it in Japan, looking at it in lots of spaces. So one of the very interesting stories will be, what will countries do as they actually come to, to, to regulate this? Um, and then, uh, you know, to, to takeaways, Bitcoin has been proof, okay? You, can, you could have argued 20 years ago or 10 years ago about whether it would work, but you don't have that argument anymore. It's been proven. It is possible to build a system of decentralized trust that actually works when there are billions of dollars in value at stake. It's synonymous, and it is capable of moving the equivalent of tens, and it is moving tens, and in some, some days, hundreds of millions of dollars a day. There are divergent views on where this is all going. Um, some people are arguing that you really need more regulation and, and, and integration with traditional payment mechanisms. Some people are arguing the very opposite, right? That, that the whole point of creating Bitcoin was to not be uh, constrained by these sort of traditional frameworks. And the last thing the Bitcoin 
the Bitcoin industry or, or folks should do is then you know, turn into yet another highly regulated uh, payment mechanism. So it works, you know, it can work. There's, there's people in the sort of a, a bit of a you know, divergence of views on, on, on how, how this should go. Um, I'll just close. I've, I've written a bunch of stuff. I've written in places like Forbes and some policy articles about this stuff. So I'm happy to uh, share those with anybody. Anyways, I, th I think I should probably wrap up here and leave a few minutes for questions if people have any. But I thank you for your time. So, okay. Thank you.